and welcome to InfoLinks on the Record. I'm your host, Kurt Teese. And I'm Olivia Winkler. And we're here broadcasting live in Nashville at the ARMA International Conference. I'm here with Todd Chernikoff, CRM, IGP, CIP. Welcome, Todd. Thank you. So you're with the Navy Federal Credit Union, mm -hmm. and you've joined them not too long ago, is that right? It's been about six months, since April. Fantastic. So you're the ISD analyst, and you bring a wealth of records management experience to the role. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So we appreciate having you on the show today. You are speaking today at the conference. Or tomorrow morning. Tomorrow. So tell us a little bit about your topic. Well, I'm speaking on basically how to prevent and cope with orphan information assets. So what do you do with all those things that you don't really know where they're from? Either, you know, where's this box full of paper from? Where are these electronic files from? If you have no real context or very little context. Interesting. So when you talk about orphan records, orphan information assets, mm -hmm. what causes them to become orphans? Well, there's a number of reasons. One, there's some sort of old, let's say, technology system that's been decommissioned. No one in the organization currently really knows the context of them. You also have departing employees, either employees who have planned their departure or, unfortunately, marched out the door. Yeah. And their records, their information wasn't well recorded wasn't didn't have proper metadata or information about it so finding where it really belongs or if it even really is needed those are the two of the main areas that come to mind or also those things that are also just poorly labeled poorly identified sure. in electronic sense you know no real metadata over time and so someone finds them and doesn't really know the context from which they come so you're currently with the Navy Federal Credit Union mm -hmm. You've had a long history within the, the industry. Mm -hmm. So give us a little bit of background, first on the Navy Federal Credit Union, mm -hmm. and then how you came to be at this organization. Well, actually, they reached out to me like through uh, either Indeed or one of those type of tools and said, you know, we have a position that you look like you're qualified for. Are you interested? And I happen to be interested. And they had approached me, I guess, last November. It took a while between, you know, just contact, sure. um, interview process, but I've been there since April now, so it's been about six months. Okay. And what makes the Navy Federal Credit Union distinct from other financial organizations? Well, it's the world's largest credit union. Oh, wow. Um, we have about 8.8 .8 million members and about $110 billion in assets. And compared to other credit unions, that's all, really all the way up there. there. So, and we have about 300 branches, most of them in the U.S., but a few dozen scattered about, mostly on military post and near military post overseas. We have a branch in Guantanamo, Cuba. We've got branches in Japan, South Korea, a few in Europe. So that also brings GDPR things into play sure. and international schedules as well. And it's like the name implies, so members and families of the Navy? Basically all the military services, DOD, families, things of that nature. Okay. So it's a relatively broad field of membership as it's termed in the industry. Excellent. And where are you based? I work at the headquarters in Vienna, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. Okay. And I understand that you're native to the area? Yes. 57, 58 years in the D.C. area. Okay. And 
you grew up there. Have you lived other places? No, I've always lived, you know, within basically 10 miles of where I was born, but I've traveled extensively for business and personal. I've been to 44 out of 50 states. Oh, really? I've been to places like Panama on personal business, Canada Entertainment Skiing, Arma Conferences there. I did a couple of assignments when I was with IBM overseas, uh, one in South Africa and another in the UK. So I've gotten around a lot. Okay, and you had a pretty long stint at IBM. I think that's where I first... Well, I actually had two stints at IBM. Which um, is not unusual. Well, so I was there from 2007 to 2011, and then got laid off. But I had an opportunity to come back a few years ago, so it's been a total of about seven years and two uh, stints. Yeah. But they both ended about the same. Changes in business tactics, sure. business products, so... As I've been in consulting, that's happened a number of times over the years. So tell me about the early part of your career. How did you get started in this? It's a very interesting story. I have no degree in information management, records, or anything of that nature. My degrees are in geography and urban studies. And so oh, interesting. I, was, I worked as a commercial real estate appraiser while I was getting a graduate degree. And then uh, after a couple years of that, ended up working on a one-year project for the City of Alexandria, Virginia's planning office. And towards the end of that one year, there was a vacancy in the department and they decided to hire me full-time. On about the first or second day of my full-time stint there, and this is a quote from the senior admin, I don't want to do the records anymore, make the new guy do it. <laughs> so I became the departmental records officer. We had about two dozen people, so I made sure that our records made it to the records center. Uh, we did a lot of microfilming of our permanent records, so did the quality control and things like that. So after about six years, I was also the smiling face at the front desk, reviewing plans, giving out information. Yeah. Was, it, was it both records and archives? Well, yeah, there was there's some archival material there as well. Some of okay. those, especially things like our special permits, zoning ordinance changes, things like that, yeah. will become permanent records according to the Library of Virginia schedules. We had to answer to the Commonwealth. But after about six years of no upward mobility and pissing off the boss there enough times, when the person who was running the record center and archives took a different job within the city government, I says, I can do this. I've read the book. I mean, literally, I, I read the book. I learned records management from the ground up. Yeah. I had a good relationship with the crew who ran the record center. And so I says, why not? It's a management job. It's a promotion. So I applied. They hired me. And I became a professional records and information management person. So after that, you know, learning more and more, a lot of on-the-job training, going to conferences, things like that. Went to the uh, National Archives and Records Administration's Modern Archives Institute to learn about a bit of archival sciences. But did that job for about two years, and then my older brother, who was a consultant with a small or medium-sized consulting company, said, hey, we've got a position at a project at the EPA. Are you interested? Oh, okay. And so I said, why not? Yeah. So then I moved into consulting. So I, for most of the last two decades, I've been a consultant, and most of that within the federal realm. I worked as the corporate records manager for the NASD, or what's now FINRA, and that was a very enjoyable job. I got a lot of things done there over the short period of time I was there. But at that same time, I got my CRM certification okay. and decided to see what the market would bring me with that. And when a relatively large sales consulting organization offered me a 40% increase in what I was making, I said, my family deserves 40% more. Wow. Back off to consulting, I went. And I've been doing consulting 
since then, and that was about 2005, until recently when I got back into the uh, corporate realm. So how did you get, I noticed you have not only the, the certified records mm -hmm. management designation, but the IGP and the CIP. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that happened at the company I was with when I got those two designations is they were considering did they want to create a program to sort of train people to get those certifications? The answer was yeah. actually no, but in that whole process, I went through the exam process. I find it very similar, both the IGP and the CIP in the content type and the testing environment. Okay. But again, you know, those are, the CRM is a narrow but deep type uh -huh. of certification, whereas IGP and CIP are a more broad, you know, much more involved in the different areas outside core records management. So, we often hear about orphaned mm, records, right. mm -hmm. and you are talking about orphaned information assets. Right. How does an information asset become orphaned? Well, as I was saying before, you know, the idea that either someone departs and it's not well tracked, it might be there's a system that's decommissioned years ago that no one did anything with the content, which may or may not be still valid and might be long expired and eligible for disposition, and also where people depart quickly and there's no process to pass on that information to the appropriate mm -hmm. person, no manager takes control of it to say, okay, now it's gonna go from Jim to Jane, mm -hmm. for example. Have you found in your consulting roles that orphan information has become a problem? Well, it's, it's always been a problem. It's just when we've moved from centralized paper files where I began all this, yeah. to more electronic type things, there's more risk in those electronic things because A, there's so many different sources. It's not like, for example, when I worked in a planning office, we had files on special use permits. So like if you wanted to open a restaurant or something of that nature that required either planning commission or city council or both action, the files would end up in a file folder, in a cabinet all together. Now, they, there might be extraneous stuff in there that would have to be purged, and then it would be sent for microfilming and sent to the archives. Now, with electronic records, especially when you're not doing what I call widget work, where it's something that's routine, it's some sort of application process that's normal and routinized, those things are usually well managed. In my experience, especially let's say in government agencies where I'm not working so much on the widgets, but let's say policy development, yeah. you get things that are coming from all different directions, they're not done in a uniform fashion, so they sort of sometimes go willy-nilly. Recently, this will come up in my presentation, working with a large, well-known federal agency, we were called to take a peek into a warehouse that they lease space in down the street from the office where we worked, and it's like, Boxes and boxes and boxes. Yeah. What are these? There's no real labeling, there's no context, there's no nothing. More common than people would imagine, right? It, it really, and important types of records, or what may have been records, they could have been copies for all I knew, but I opened up a box and found what I suspect came from the director of facilities. A relatively high position. Yeah. Not only that, but the agency, and this was decades ago, was considering a large consolidation project. You know, we're going to bring people from all these different buildings around the metro area into one complex, one that might have been an other agency complex that was no longer used, or building a whole new set of buildings on government-owned land. 
this is we're talking you know millions and millions or billions of dollars worth of you know eventual project. Wow. But these unlabeled boxes from perhaps this guy's office from two decades ago, you know, these are probably permanent records. Yeah. Assuming they weren't the copies. So that's just an example of what you might find. You know, people box up an office when someone moves and said, you know, Trixie's office. What does that mean when someone opens these years or decades later? So during your career, how have you seen records management evolve mm -hmm. with technology? And how much has it remained the same? The same principles mm -hmm. remain constant? Well, one thing, yeah, in, in terms of technology, when I started in a municipal government, you know, we didn't have email, we didn't do sure. anything of that nature. But one thing I did learn in that whole process, we were working on automating the permitting process. So I went through as a user a requirements gathering exercise. So that yeah. was, that's been helpful over the years. Obviously, as you get more electronic and less paper, again, there's that more of an opportunity for things to go awry. But it's always been about assessing the value of the assets, you know. In the scheduling process, you have to understand, are they required by some rule? Yep. What's the business requirement? How do you balance those things? And especially going forward, if it's, for example, especially in electronic records, if you know something's going to be a permanent record, you should think about that upfront in developing your systems or how you store those records because down the road, it's going to help somebody else. And how big a role does the traditional retention schedule play into that? Well, it depends. In some organizations, you have very, very well-defined records, a very, either it could be a big bucket or a very fine-grained type of schedule. But you have to think about these things in advance and make sure that your systems or other processes execute on those schedules. Yeah. Um, one of the things I do currently at work is I spend a lot of time talking to the people developing systems and making sure the systems either A, can automate the process of disposition, and B, that destruction or move it on to archival, or is there some sort of workaround you need? If it's something that isn't automated, how do we get the disposition to happen down the road? So I was interested in your, your title, ISD Analyst. Mm -hmm. You have a lot of acronyms. Right. What's an ISD analyst? Well, ISDs are Information Services Department. Okay. So it's just a very generic title. More aptly, I'm a records and information management subject matter expert or an information government subject I matter expert. Okay. The RIM department is very small. We have two full-time contractors right now. There's 19,000 employees. Wow. Now, we don't do things such as move boxes from the office or any of our offices. We have four main offices plus you know, 300 some branches. We have an office in the DC area, we have an office in Winchester, Virginia, further west, a major operation in Pensacola, and a small west coast hub in the San Diego area. But you know the boxes, the papers, things like that, administrative services people deal with that, and the departments also deal with disposing of their information. We just do strategy, schedules, policy, and things of that nature, as well as systems review. And would you say that you're a highly regulated entity? Yes, being in the financial services industry, we are highly regulated. We uh, answer to the uh, NCUA, which is sort of like the FDIC for okay. our credit unions. And are you subject to 
internal and external audits? Yes, and one of the things actually that's on my plate in the coming year is to build the records and information management process of auditing the departments. Oh, interesting. So okay. that's something that I'll be working on. Also, you know, we have to consider, since the RIM function is relatively new within Navy Federal, that we're going to be audited by internal audit. And many of the departments that we deal with are very concerned about information and how it's retained so that they can answer to the NCUA when they come in and do all their audits. Yeah. So since you started not that far back, mm -hmm. what was it that drove the organization to seek someone out with your your background and mm -hmm. experience? Well, I'll also say there's another person who has at least what I have in terms of years of experience in the industry, maybe a little bit more. So we've got two people like me who do the analysis work. We have another person who's more technical and other people who come in to do contracting work on special projects, plus our program manager who's wandering around this conference somewhere. It's her first ARMA conference, my 17th. Um, so <laughs> somehow I have to find her and uh, you know see how she's doing. So this is her first yes. ARMA conference here in Nashville, but 17 years I've been in ARMA. Well, longer in ARMA, but this is my 17th conference. 17th conference, okay. Mm -hmm. And is this the main professional organization that you participate in? Yes, most of my volunteerism has been with ARMA. I'm a member of AIM as well, uh -huh. um, but I'm not as active in AIM. But I've served locally, my chapter, for probably about 10 years overall. The first nine years of that were before I became a region team member, yeah. and then I spent three years on the ARMA International Board. Todd, you've been involved in the ARMA conferences and ARMA International as a whole in many different ways. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little about how you've been involved? Well, I guess when I started as a full-time records and information management person, the uh, organization, the city where I was working, paid for my membership, and so I was technically a member then. But I really didn't get involved until a few years later when I had been working in my first consulting position and that position went away. And so a good friend of mine who was another Rector Information Management person, we'd actually both gone to college together and both have degrees in geography. Oh, is that but right? now we were both in we're CRMs, we're both very involved in ARMA. I went to I guess it was a spring seminar, I think it was being held at the National Archives building in College Park and went there looking for paths towards a new job. And then you know, they hooked me in, and that was at about 2000. So what attracted you to studying geography to begin with? Well, my parents were very involved in the community, and one of the things they were involved with our civic associations with was land use planning. You know, what are okay. things being zoned for? What's you know, going to be built on the edge of the neighborhood? It was a developing area, and they were concerned about those things. So. I'd go to the meetings, to the civic meetings, I'd go to planning board meetings, and I saw these colorful land use maps, and I thought, that's really cool stuff. <laughs> so that's sort of where I got interested. So were you good when you have to name the capital of a state? Well, in like eighth grade or something, when that one came up, I did ace that class, but what a lot of people don't understand is geography's not really about what's where, it's why is it there? How did it get there? Okay, I see. So that's sort of a semi-misconception, you know, geography is about places, but it's more about the study of why. What has been your most rewarding moment in ARMA, or your most memorable? Well, I guess sort of the memorable one was I nominated myself to join the board of directors, and when I got a call from Galina Deskova to say you are now going to be an 
member of the board. How did that feel? That was very good. I think if I remember correctly, I was like driving down the street and the cell phone <laughs> rang. Or actually, I remember I even kept the voicemail of her saying, call me back. It didn't oh, yeah. know exactly what it was about, but when I got back to her, that's what it was about. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. That, yeah, that was 2013, so that's been a, a number of years. I'd be, you know, very willing time available somewhere down the line to uh, serve on the board again. So how did you find serving since you served locally with mm -hmm. ARMA, the local mm -hmm. chapter, then going to the international level? Well, with a stop in the middle in, in the regions, but the ARMA board is a very strategic thinking board. They don't get into the minutia of operations as much as they probably used to, sure. say, 15, 20 years ago. So that's something I understand the need for. The local board is, you know, it's very tactical. You've got to do things. Yeah. So what keeps you coming back to Armo? What do you find that's the value here? Well, one thing is that my parents taught me early on. My father was very involved in association work in his field. He was an engineer at NASA. He was a oh, really? front end of doing uh, small ceramic microchips. Okay. So he, he built little microchips that are flying around in the Hubble and other satellites before that. Wow. But between that and civic things like community land use concerns, things like that, sort of how I got interested in the planning profession. Yeah. So before me, they taught me the value of being involved in your community as well as being involved in your profession. Yeah. So it's only natural that as a recreational information management professional, Arma was the place to uh, put that to work. Today's the first official day of the, the conference. What are you looking for out of this show in particular? Well, I'm, I'm always here to, you know, get reinforcement and also see what people have come up with. What are the new things? What are the inspirational things? What are the new technologies that I haven't run into yet? Yeah. And again, you know, with my program manager wandering around here, pointing her in the direction of any tools that we might think are good that we can bring back to our managers and to the credit union. Fantastic. Well, we're looking forward to your presentation at the show. We appreciate you spending thank time you, with us. You. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank I enjoyed so it very much. much.